Love a good fright? Stream your fears with Shudder. From the legendary monsters that fuel your nightmares to under-the-radar haunts and acclaimed exclusives like Creepshow and Slasher, Flesh and Blood, experience what Polygon calls a horror movie paradise and what RogerEbert.com says is one of the best streaming services in the world. Stacked with chilling content, all curated by the industry's top horror experts, Shudder's library of frightening films and eerie series covers the horror spectrum, meaning there's something for every type of horror, thriller, and supernatural fan. Available ad-free and on the platforms you're already on. Sign up today at Shudder.com. Shudder, so good, it's scary. There's a reason podcasts are popping up everywhere. Podcasts can make you money. And Spreaker is the easiest way to start a podcast. You could literally record your first episode today. Spreaker has all the tools you need to record, edit, publish, and yeah, monetize your podcast all in one place. And it's free. So tell your story and make money while doing it. Start your podcast for free now at Spreaker.com slash make money. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com slash make money from the iHeart Podcast Network. There's a reason podcasts are popping up everywhere. Podcasts can make you money. And Spreaker is the easiest way to start a podcast. You could literally record your first episode today. Spreaker has all the tools you need to record, edit, publish, and yeah, monetize your podcast all in one place. And it's free. So tell your story and make money while doing it. Start your podcast for free now at Spreaker.com slash make money. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com slash make money from the iHeart Podcast Network. We can also drive that car if we need to. If this one. It'll make it. Crap, so it'll make it. This is my grandma's car. Every time I drive up the steep and curvy Arkansas road into the Ozark Mountains, I have two simultaneous thoughts. The woods are beautiful. They're also terrifying. Things are kind of falling apart. And and also there's a lot of space between um, a lot of these vacant houses. I've been coming up here with my family since I was a kid, and I have a lot of happy memories. But let's face it. There's a reason why so many horror movies are set in cabins in the woods. Sometimes, bad things happen when no one is around to hear you scream. And we have no cell phone reception. Yeah, that's alarming. It was on this desolate stretch of Highway 9 in the Ozarks, between Mountain View and Melbourne, that on September 27, 2004, searchers found the body of 22-year-old Rebecca Gould. Rebecca was beautiful, popular, and full of life and her killing shook an area where the murder rate was pretty much zero. It's been 14 years, and Rebecca's killer has never been found. The murder has become one of the most notorious cold cases in the region. But for me, this case is personal. I have a long history with this area. My dad and my little sister Caroline still live in Mountain View. She went to high school with Rebecca's younger sister, Danielle, and they are still close friends. Even after I became a writer and private investigator and moved to New York City, Rebecca's murder continued to haunt me. Every time I went home to visit my family, I would hear more rumors about the case. Occasionally, a news station would do an update on the case, illustrated with Rebecca, blonde, dazzling smile, with her white fluffy dog in her lap. 
But over the years, the leads were fewer and farther between. I couldn't figure it out. If everyone in town thought they knew who killed Rebecca, why hadn't her case been solved? A few months ago, I came back to the Ozarks. I wanted to catch Rebecca's killer. I was supposed to stay for two weeks, but I never left. And at some point, my investigation crossed over into an obsession. I'm not stopping until I get justice for Rebecca. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. The last time Rebecca was seen alive was a week before her body was found, on September 20th, 2004. It was a Monday morning, just after 8 a.m. Rebecca had been staying at her boyfriend Casey's house for the weekend. Rebecca gave Casey a ride to work in her black 1997 Chevy Cavalier. Casey was a cook at the Sonic in Melbourne. Rebecca had met him about a year earlier when she worked there as a car hop. But Rebecca's days of delivering burgers on roller skates were over. She had recently moved into an apartment in Fayetteville with her sister, Danielle, and was starting college at Northwest Arkansas. After dropping Casey off, she stopped at the Possum Trot gas station in Melbourne, where she bought a breakfast sandwich and coffee. Rebecca's plan had been to drive back to Casey's, pack her stuff, and meet Danielle to drive back to school. When she didn't show up that afternoon, Danielle and the rest of her family became alarmed. The next day, police showed up at Casey's house. They found Rebecca's car parked outside. Inside, they found her cell phone, purse, all of her clothes, and her dog, Lady. There was no sign of Rebecca, but there were ominous signs that something very bad had happened there. A blood-soaked mattress that had been flipped over. Her uneaten breakfast sandwich. A washing machine full of blood. Over the years, I've heard a lot of rumors. I heard there was a party over the weekend, a fight with a girl, a jealous lover. Someone even told me that Rebecca was kidnapped, chained up, and held hostage in a horse trailer. So our first job will be separating fact from fiction. Taylor and James, who are both working on the podcast, have come to Arkansas to help me. They started out working on sound and logistics, but quickly got sucked down the internet rabbit hole of topics boards and web sleuths. I know this look. They've been sucked into the case, too. Let's start with what we know, based on newspaper reports and the murder board I brought with me from Manhattan. Police released almost no details on this case, and what's out there publicly is hard to find. A lot of it's not available online, so we head to the library to look up old editions of the newspaper on microfiche. Um, backpacks and purses do need to be out here in lockers, though. Okay. Okay. And there are keys there for you. <laughs> 2004. I don't know what the 
16. September 16th or yeah. Yeah, one of the two. It, it started with a one, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she went missing the next day, which would be there. So this may have been the first day that she was reported missing was on Tuesday? Yeah. Although, again, we need to that because everyone tells me a different day. Some people say Monday, some people say Tuesday. I'm sure the police would at least confirm that, maybe. Oh, there's search for search woman. Search for woman continues, there's yeah. One. What day is that? Friday. That is Friday, Friday the 24th. Oh, you can see a picture of the missing posters, too. Yeah. Rebecca Gould. Blonde hair, brown eyes, 103 pounds. So, Friday the 24th, it made the Baxter Bulletin. According to authorities, she had visited a friend and guy on last weekend and failed to return to Fayetteville. And her car with her purse, keys, and money in it was found at the friend's house. The friend is not considered a suspect in the disappearance, according to Arkansas State Police Lieutenant Bill Beach. Um, yeah, see, in the beginning, it was confusing because there was a report that um, she had been seen that afternoon, it looks like. But that was later found to be not true. So it just kind of goes to show, like, when stories come out after the fact, there's often a lot of facts wrong. Official suspect foul play. There it is. Um, what day is that? Is that the, the weekend? Sa- yeah, Saturday and Sunday, so it's in. At this point in time, there are several people of interest, but no particular suspect. So it says here... Um, I searched the area Monday morning and found the body 35 feet down the embankment of the highway. I think the the, uh, George Jarrett guy knows because he was one of the first people to see the body. Since we have no forensics and so few details have been revealed about this case, we have to focus on victimology. We have to enter the mind of the crime victim so that we can understand the relationship with her killer or killers. To understand her death, we have to go back to the last weekend of her life. So we had to talk to the person who knew her best, her sister, Danielle. Starting route to Mountain Home. So it was your sister that got you interested in this or put this case on your radar in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I'd read about it, but Caroline, because Caroline was friends with Danielle, I would hear about it more, you know, like over the years. I would just kind of hear what was going on and then it was unsolved. and, And then when I met Danielle, it just got really personal. Rebecca was only a year older than Danielle. They were best friends. When Danielle talks about the day her sister was murdered, it's obvious she's not just relaying information about that horrific day. She's reliving it. Um, It's sensitive subject matter. She has to talk about her sister maybe being sexually assaulted and everything like that. Um, This is as close as we're going to get to being inside Rebecca's head in in that final 48 hours. On the Friday before Rebecca disappeared, she and Danielle drove from Fayetteville where they had recently moved into an apartment together, back to Mountain View. Like a lot of us at that age, Rebecca's life was in transition. Danielle is visibly emotional as she remembers the last conversation that she ever had with her sister. She remembers that Rebecca was looking forward to starting college and to the future. She had her whole life ahead of her. When they got to town, the sisters split up. Danielle stayed with her boyfriend, Nick, while Rebecca headed out to spend the weekend with Casey. After Rebecca's murder, Danielle went on to marry Nick. They had two daughters, but have since separated. She's been through some tough times and had health issues that have affected her memory. Despite how physically and mentally hard this is for her, she's determined to help find her sister's killer. 
can you just sort of take me through what happened from the time that you guys got in the car to when you dropped her off and the last time you talked to her? Um, we got in the car and we um, started to drive back home. We had a flat tire like 20 miles, 30 miles away. She changed it. She could change a tire? Yeah, it surprised me. Um, I can't remember if we, if I drove, I probably drove to Nick's house and she, yeah, she probably dropped me off there and she left to go to Casey's. And we were gonna meet back up Monday and go back to Fayetteville. Danielle remembers waiting for Rebecca the sinking feeling in her stomach when her sister never showed up. Um, yeah, we were supposed to meet early that morning, and I knew, I think I, I just knew something was wrong. And um, we'd gotten phone calls, you know, she couldn't be found. Driving out there, like, I mean, I was just sick already, just driving out there. Really? She remembers driving up to Casey's house and seeing the flurry of police activity there. That was the moment when she figured out that her sister's crash pad was a crime scene. Did you talk to her that weekend at all? I don't think I did. But that was not unusual, right? Like for her to right. stay That's there not and hang out? unusual. Mm-mm. Just had to start looking. Over the next week, police launched a massive manhunt for Rebecca. Friends and family papered the town with wanted posters. Hundreds of volunteers scoured the woods. It seemed like the whole town was looking for Rebecca. Some of them screamed her name so that if she was hurt and bleeding in a sinkhole or a barn, she would hear them. And on September 27th, the search ended. Just She didn't deserve what happened to her. <laughs> if there was any other way to, like help get this out there without having to ask you and put you through it, I would, you know, I would. Yeah, I know. She was a good person. I mean, she loved, you know, and cared for a lot of people, and sorry. It's okay. It's not brain. I'm sorry. It's okay. I guess I know that you guys were best friends and really close, Mm -hmm. and, um, I'm trying to understand what was going on in her life before she died. We we had just moved to Fayetteville. We were living with Tiffany, my other sister, and we were in college. She was trying to make her life better as, as far as getting into college, moving on to Fayetteville, and becoming somebody. What's your relationship been like with the Izzard County? police. I don't contact them. I mean, I don't contact anybody other than you. I mean, I want it solved, but there's just no point. I mean, what would you like to see happen? Someone I actually care and um, help us solve it and get the correct people that took her life. Is it okay with you? I mean, would you be okay with us calling your dad? Yeah, that's fine. Like, that's perfectly fine. Okay. And I mean, you can do anything you want to help, you know, 
get it um, solved because it's not fair to no one to lose someone and then just to, you know, not have any, you know, closure. Um, that was challenging. To listen to? She holds it together incredibly well. I you can feel it's just the pain in her eyes. Rebecca's body was found down a steep embankment off Highway 9, five miles south of Melbourne, near Devil's Knob Wildlife Management Area. Even though the body was near the road and just a few miles from the Izzard County Sheriff's Department, her body was hidden by a thick wall of trees. It's a day that local journalist George Jared, who covered the case extensively, will never forget. He saw Rebecca still wearing the black briefs and T-shirt that she wore to bed. George was a 24-year-old cub reporter when Rebecca was killed, and hers was the first murder case he ever covered. It's really strange to say this, but I never knew her, but there is no, she had a, as a profound impact on my career as anything. Um, what happened was, actually the newspaper worked, it was a weekly newspaper. I would call all the police agencies in my coverage area. One of them was the Izzard County Sheriff's Department. So I called them, it was probably Monday or Tuesday. Um, she disappeared that Monday, September 20th, 2004. And so I called them, and I, I know I called them on Monday. I probably called them on Tuesday. But, you know, when you're dealing with small agencies like that, they don't have murders. I mean, they, not very rarely. So I'd call, and they didn't say anything. You know, it was, um, you know, well, nothing going on here. George is right. I've covered a lot of true crime cases, and I know that police often hold back information that only the killer would know from the public. But in this case, they won't even verify basic information. Sometime Tuesday, they went to Casey McCullough's house. The story is, you know, she went and dropped him off at work, and then she went to the, the Possum Trot convenience store, got a couple things, and then left, went back to his house, and then somewhere, sometime during that morning, she died. And so during this process, I actually met Danielle um, and Shirley, her mother, and Larry. They were down at the Sheriff's Department when I went down there, and I started talking to them. Literally the next day, the Thursday, they were out around Guyon near where Casey McCullough's house is. And they were looking, you know, searching. And I literally watched Larry taking posters of his daughter and taping them to, you know, like those guide wires or arrows, I mean, that go around like a curve. And he was, he, I mean, obviously you can't do that, number one. And number two, nobody driving at any speed would even be able to see or make out what it was. But when I saw him doing that, it just crushed me. And so, um, so I was out there searching with them, you know, looking. The next Monday, I got to work really, really early, like 5 o'clock in the morning. I just went in. I just had this feeling I need to go back to Melbourne. And um, so I drove down there, went to the courthouse. Now, in the morning, a lot of, you know, these elderly women would walk around the courthouse. And they were talking. There were several of them down there. And so I, I parked my, my vehicle and I got out and I walked up to them. Uh, a couple of I heard I overheard a couple of ladies talking that there were surgers behind or out near this woman's property somewhere. So I 
said, could you tell me where you live? And she told me, and it was out, it was down Arkansas 9, you know, connecting Mountain View with Melbourne. And um, so she said, oh, yeah, they're out there. And she had said something about a smell. I went out there, and, um, you know, I saw a bunch of cars, like, lined up on the side of the road. And so I knew something was there. Well, I, I ran into a searcher that I had. He, I'd met him through the searching. You know, I'd seen him, and I said, hey, um, I heard you guys are out here looking for Rebecca out here. And he was pointing, he goes, she's right there. And I saw her. I mean, she was right off the road. Um, she looked like she was asleep. You know, one side of her face was, you know, seemed okay, and then the other side was, you know, very badly damaged and decomposing. Um, was she lying down or sitting up or...? She was slumped. It was like she, it was like she was in some... Um, I want to say like some... There was like tree limbs. It was really grassy. It almost looked like maybe she had been... Where she had been tossed... Like maybe she had landed on a branch or something. I mean, but when you see something like that for the first time ever in your life, um, you're almost like you're not there. At that moment, I was like just trying to get away. Like I literally started walking back away from it. And I had a camera with me. And I remember somebody asked me, they said, you're going to take a picture of that, are you? And I said, no. I said, I'm going to try to forget about this. Probably spend the rest of my life trying to forget about this. We'll be right back. Love a good fright? Start streaming and screaming with Shudder. From the legendary monsters that fuel your nightmares to under-the-radar haunts and critically acclaimed exclusives, discover what Polygon calls a horror movie paradise and what RogerEbert.com says is one of the best streaming services in the world. Stacked with chilling content, all curated by the industry's top horror experts, Shudder's library of frightening films and eerie series cover the entire horror spectrum meaning there's something for every type of fan. Come experience highly anticipated new releases like Superhost, Seance starring Suki Waterhouse, and the Boulay Brothers' Dracula. Plus, don't miss out on Creepshow, Slasher, Flesh and Blood, and other must-see Shudder exclusives you won't find anywhere else. Available ad-free and on the platforms you're already on. Sign up today at Shudder.com. Shudder, so good it's scary. This episode is sponsored by Maidenhome. High-quality, handcrafted furniture for the modern home. Maiden Home brings you thoughtfully designed custom furniture, handcrafted in North Carolina. This region is home to some of the world's most talented artisans who are experts in woodworking, upholstery, and finishing. By partnering directly with these family-owned workrooms, Maiden Home gives you access to the world's finest craftsmanship without the retail markup. From sofas and sectionals to tables and beds, you'll find beautiful heirloom-quality pieces that will last for years. And with over 60 fabrics and leathers and a variety of wood finishes to choose from, you can create a piece custom to your design style. Enjoy complimentary white glove delivery on all orders, a lifetime warranty, and easy returns within 30 days. To browse the latest collection and order free swatches, visit maidenhome.com. That's M-A-I-D-E-N-H-O-M-E.com to start building your custom piece today. 
to show you how easy it is to file a claim with Geico, we hired a soap opera star. Gracious me, my car has storm damage and I've had to file a claim. Could it possibly get worse? Will my claims team leave me for someone else? Someone less intense? Um, no. Actually, when you file a claim with Geico, you get your own dedicated claims team who promises to stay with you throughout the process. Oh, I've never known such loyalty. I can't wait for the second season. Geico, great service without all the drama. Rebecca's father, Larry Gold, is a prominent dentist in nearby Mountain Home. We meet with Larry in the back room of his dental office, a converted house right in the middle of town. Hey, how are you? Good, this is Taylor. Taylor, hi. So nice to meet you. Taylor was so into the She drove from Atlanta. How long have you been here? Um, so I've been here almost a week, be a week on Saturday. As we talk to him, his dental hygienists work around us. He has the same tan skin and dazzling smile as his daughter's. Larry went to USC before marrying Rebecca's mom, Shirley, and moving here. And his accent is still more Southern California than Northern Arkansas. People in this neck of the woods fall into one of two categories. You're either from around here or you're from off. So even though Larry has lived in the area for over four decades, run a business, and raised a family, to many locals, he still falls into the latter category. Um, <clears throat> Rebecca had a hard life. I attempted to get custody of Rebecca and her sisters and was pretty much raised by her mother in different areas of Arkansas. Uh, they eventually settled in the Mountain View area. And then as as Rebecca grew a little bit older, um, I, I would have to say that my opinion of Re Rebecca began to um, really develop further. I, I had a little bit more time around her, and uh, I saw that she was beginning to turn her life around. But there was a lot of outside influences that were really pulling Rebecca in the right direction. And <clears throat> nothing could have made me happier than to see that. So um, <clears throat> I, I come back to the one memory in particular that um, makes me cry every time. <laughs> every time. <clears throat> Excuse me. The last time that I saw her and I talked to her was probably um, every father's dream. Um, she came to my home, and she said, Dad, I want to talk to you. And so we went out on our back porch, and, and we had some privacy. And she uh, proceeded to tell me that she was uh, uh, wanting to uh, fulfill some dreams of hers in college. And so she was heading, heading towards getting into the University of Arkansas. So she was at that point in, in my life, in our relationship, doing absolutely everything right. Um, she had dreams, she had hopes, she had ambition. But the one thing that she said to me that, that will um, 
always be remembered. Uh, I don't know if I can get this this out. (laughs) No, I I mean, I'll take it, but as I said, it it was really every father's dream to hear hear from your child. But she said said to me that, um, Dad, I've, I've watched you in life, and you've always done well. And I want to want to be like you. So, so those that's my last memory of our time together. Um, so, with that said, obviously I knew I knew nothing about what was going to happen next, and, I, and for some reason I'm thinking it was only a few weeks before this happened. After that, it could have been a month, could have been a couple of months. But when it happened, um, that that disbelief, um, I don't know. You're 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 in you're in a state of shock, and. You've never been through something like this before, and you don't know the next step. So you obviously begin to turn to law enforcement and people you trust to uh, to answer your questions and to, and to kind of help point you in the right direction. In the years since Rebecca's murder, Larry has done his own investigation. He's written countless letters to the police and to the prosecutors. He's hired PIs and gone to the press. At some point... He even talked to a clairvoyant. At first, he was cooperative, patient. He was a law-abiding citizen who raised his kids to respect God, the American flag, and the police. But after several years passed with no arrests, Larry grew frustrated. He felt like the police were stonewalling him. So he went to the media, and he hasn't spoken to the Arkansas State Police since. The investigators in charge of the case believe that by going to the press, Larry hurt the investigation. Uh, if you have a murder that's unsolved, uh, the longer you go, the harder it is to, to come up with, with uh, the facts and to get any kind of a conviction. So there needs to be some parameters built into the law enforcement to where at, any, at a certain given point, and I'll just use as a reference five years, Say five years, you give law enforcement everything they can possibly do. At the end of five years, the family, as long as they're not considered to be um, a, a possible suspect, they should have the right to come in and maybe at that point not look at the file, but they certainly have a right to look at certain things and then to bring in qualified people representing them. At some point in time, you need to, have, you need to be able to access the entire file. It is a cold case. They wouldn't let me have her, any of her forensics. They wouldn't let me have any of her, uh, of the medical, um, uh, the, the anatomical findings. Uh, cause, well, the cause of death was on a death certificate, but, you know, sometimes that gets put on a death certificate, and that's an error. Uh, and you just want other people to be able to look at this. According to Rebecca's autopsy report, the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head, probably with just one or two blows. Nobody's been able to confirm this for me yet, but I've heard over the years 
that the murder weapon may have been a piano leg. Was this, as some people have speculated, a pre-planned crime? Or did her killer hit her as hard as they could and then panic when she started bleeding? By the time Rebecca's body was found, it had been out in the elements for a week. Her body was badly decomposed, which makes determining an exact time of death difficult. And the media reports state that Rebecca dropped Casey off at work on Monday morning. There's another rumor going around that she was actually killed over the weekend. Rebecca's car had dark tinted windows. Is it possible that someone else was driving her car that morning? To understand Rebecca's death, we need to take the same ride she took on the last day she was alive. We head to the Possum Trot, the local gas station. Back in the day, Rebecca was a regular. These days, it's pretty deserted. It is super hot out there. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like a sauna. I head in. Behind the counter, there's a black and white TV playing an old Western. And watching it, and me, is an old man, the cashier. He knows who I am and talks to me about the case. Oh, that's a... Were you in here last time I was in here? Yeah. I can't remember. I've, I've been working on this Rebecca Gould Cole case. So yeah. I've come by a few times. I couldn't remember if you were in here before. See you, and how are you doing with that? You know, we've actually made a lot of progress. We got a bunch of tips and it's been going pretty well. Thank you. Yeah. I know I wish I had better conditioning. <laughs> What? I know I wish my car had better air conditioning. Right. See you later. Bye-bye. Hi, my name's James Morrison, and I'm trying to get in touch with Steve Wortham. This is Steve. Oh, hi, Steve. Taylor and James put on their reporter hats and try to find the last person to see Rebecca alive. Yes. I want to convey you the story. She stopped got the, the a breakfast biscuit out that morning. Jessica Wortham this morning to serve her. I see. And is that a relation? Is that your daughter? Were you involved in the search or anything? And well, I talked to her mother a lot of times. Her mother came by several times, wanting to know if we knew where she might be or something. But you know, I didn't. Well, they got to know who did it because it's been a too much hush. Yeah, you're talking about the police have to know who did it. Yes, it was a bad deal. I mean. Bernie told me it was a bad deal inside the trailer, chasing and, you know, blatant, you know, every war. Well, I'll tell you what, if you need me, call me again or call me and I'll meet you when you come out. Um, let's see if we can find his niece. Hello. Hi, my name's James Morrison and I'm trying to get in touch with Jessica Schrabel. Another location. I don't know how you would uh, 
get her phone number. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was just talking with her um, uncle, uh, Steve. Yeah, and he he'd given me this number. He must have given me the wrong one. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you get a hold of her. I don't know what her phone number is. All right, well, thank you. Um, I found her by looking up Shrebel as a friend of Casey's, and then from her sister, oh, there's yeah. a Shrebel. I clicked on her and then found Jenna, uh, Jessica Shrebel. Yeah. But also, I got it. Oh, and then also, where's she work? I can give them a call. I hate to bother you at work. Um, this is the only number that I, I had. I had just spoken to your uncle, um, uh, Steve, and he, he told me that I should talk to you. And I was wondering, you know, if, if there may be a, a better time to call you, if, if you would be interested in talking with me. Yeah, that's fine. This is Jessica Schrabel. She was working as a cashier at the Possum Trot on the morning that Rebecca went missing. Really, you were the last person to yeah. see her alive. Mm-hmm. I hardly ever worked a Monday, and that day I was working a Monday. You don't remember something until, you know, something significant happens, and then you're like, oh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, her and Casey came in several, several times, you know, and I remember cappuccino being a big thing, and so that's what she, positive, that's what she got that day. Do you remember if she bought a breakfast sandwich? Yeah, yeah, that was like the cappuccino on the breakfast sandwich was what, you know? Can you just tell us about the morning? Sure. Okay, so I was at work <laughs> at... Possum tried at the quick stop, and she actually came in. I cannot remember what time it was. I'm going to say, like, it wasn't busy, so I'm going to say probably after people had went to work, 8.30 to 10 o'clock that morning, and um, came in. She was someone that, like, if I seen her, you know, they're like, oh, that's, you know, Casey's friend or whatever. So anyway, so then, like, when she left, I um, walked outside behind her, bought a newspaper, picked up the newspaper, and was kind of, you know, like when you pick up something, you stop and you look, and she got in her car, and she left, and I remember looking at her car, and she was going, like, towards, I say home, guy road, you know, right out of there, um, and so then that's, that's really the only thing I knew until probably Wednesday, Thursday, when her mom came in and said, you know, her mom was very frantic when she came in, she had, like, a big poster, and she was like, I was screaming when she came in. She was like, has anybody seen her? And so I was like, oh, probably, you know, she was in here Monday morning, and that's it. And she just, like, like kind of, like, you know, like, starts yelling at me, like, you've got to call the police. You've got to call the police. And I'm like, you know, that would kind of, like, scare anybody. So it kind of, like, freaked me out. I was like, oh, I mean, I said, I don't, I don't know anything. I said, I just remember. I said, she was in here. And she's like, no, you've got to call. I think maybe I gave her my number or then said, you know, you can, somebody can call me if they need to or something like that. And then, like, probably two to three days later, then that's when I was contacted by, I think that the Mark guy, Mark Collingsworth, when I was talking to him, I didn't even realize, you know, I thought, oh, she's missing, you know, she's ran away, something like that. At some point, he said something during our conversation, and I said, you know, do you, do you think she's dead? And he's like, it looks that way. And I was like oh my gosh, you know, like I didn't, you know, until that point, I didn't realize that it was like anything like that. You know, I just thought, oh, she's missing. We're really worried about her, you know, but of course that the details had came out at that point, you know. In Izzard County, you don't think anything like that. I mean, that's like the farthest thing that you would ever think is, you know, had happened to, to her. After Rebecca left the Possum Trot, she would have turned right down the road toward Casey's house in Guyon. So we do the same thing. We drive out to Casey's house, 
Of course, it doesn't show up on a map or on GPS. Yeah, well, look at that. Okay, so Guyan, population 86, right? <laughs> I mean, this is the middle of nowhere. Like, oh, yeah. this is way more remote than Mountain View. All right, let's see what's up. So, that's it. This is where Rebecca stayed the last weekend of her life. We finally find it. It's a blue-gray, double-wide trailer in the middle of nowhere at the end of a dirt road. Whatever bad thing happened to Rebecca, it started here. She probably crawled into bed, maybe hoping to catch a few minutes of her favorite 9 a.m. show, Live with Regis and Kathy, or maybe to take a quick nap before meeting her sister. Um, this is the other thing about this, this area that's um, weird, is that, like, you're back in the woods, right? There's, like, literally so many little, like, rat trails and weird little rat runs and back ways and, you know out of here. We'll be right back. Fifteen minutes could save you 15% or more. Is that Shakespeare? Nope, it's Geico. Uh, yeah, 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 that's Shakespeare from one of his unpublished works. Oh, it be not for awakening. Nay, give it thou the berries. For 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. No, it's from Geico, because they help save people money. Well, I hate to break it to you, but Geico got it from Shakespeare. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Good afternoon. Would you like to try a free sample of our double fudge brownie? Oh, sure. Mmm, that's very good. I'll just take one more, just to be sure. Yep, still very good. Some things never change. Like never being able to take just one free sample. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Mmm, is that macadamia nut I taste? We take one more. Sir, mm. yeah, I thought so. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Geico knows there are many reasons why you ride. From the exciting adventure of the daily commute to the peace of mind that Geico always has your back with 24-7 access to claim service and legendary customer service. But Pamela Mund had one reason in particular. My skin is extremely averse to most fabrics, except for the soft, buttery feeling of leather. Thankfully, I found my clan of leather lovers in the biking community. It's been life-changing. Geico Motorcycle. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Let's start with the obvious. True crime fans know the police usually look hard at the boyfriend, but Casey was publicly cleared very early in the investigation. According to the Arkansas State Police, he was at work all day on Monday and out that night with multiple witnesses. Since he thought Rebecca had left for school, he stayed overnight with a group of friends and did not return to the house until the police called him at work on Tuesday. Casey had an airtight alibi. So who else could have known that Rebecca would be out here in the middle of nowhere alone? Another thing that bugs me about this case is that Monday morning is a weird time for a murder. I've tried reaching out to the police before, but I've had very little luck. But now that we're here doing the podcast, I want to let law enforcement know that we're here to help and we'll share any information that we're given. Wait, so who was the lead investigator on the case? There was Mark and then Dennis. 
So Dennis is in charge of the investigation. Mark is the head of the Arkansas State Police Division, so he has to give permission for any, you know, official interviews or anything like that. And uh, I talked to Mark before. Mark was the original detective on the case. Mark is the one who told me a few years ago when I talked first talked to him and ambushed him in his office, like that he thought um, that we were going to have to. He, he thought they were going to have to think outside the box, you know, get some outside help on the case. Then it got assigned to Dennis because Mark got a promotion, right? So he's like in charge of the whole thing. Rebecca's case involved law enforcement from several different jurisdictions. The Izzard County Sheriff's Department responded to the initial crime scene, but the sheriff very quickly handed the case over to the Arkansas State Police. A few months later, the case was given to Dennis Simons of the Arkansas State Police. It's been Dennis's case ever since. His satellite office is a room at the back of the Stone County Sheriff's Department, a few blocks past the town square. I leave James and Taylor in the car and head in alone. I hope Catherine gets some good stuff from Dennis Simons and make it on his good side for sure. Yeah, because if he can help us out, then we can help him out. I mean, we have the same goals, so it seems like it would be advantageous for him to help us out. Yeah, no, because I think now it's just going to be playing the waiting game for a while. But I mean, I guess the longer we wait, the better. Yeah, exactly, because that means he's talking to her hasn't slammed the door in her face. I'm pretty nervous going in to meet Dennis because I've heard that he's a former military drill sergeant who does things by the book. Normally, you'd wait to be called into an officer's office. But since there's no receptionist, I decide to take a shot. I summon every ounce of what I hope looks like sweet Southern charm, walk straight in, and sit down. Oh, there she is coming out. Uh Uh-oh, her face. Oh, she's smiling, it looks like. I don't know. It's hard to tell. Let's see what she says. Oh, so, that was interesting. So that's about 20 minutes, actually. All right, so he's clearly very, he's got, you know, I could see the case files with Rebecca's picture on him, taking up several shelves up there. In his office, he's clearly very passionate about the case. He really wants to solve it. But he's also like, look, like I've got a couple years till retirement. Like I want to make it there. I'd love to prosecute this case before retirement, but you know, I'm not allowed to talk about this case. So he said there's been a lot of heartbreak in the case. There's been a lot of missed opportunities. There's been, you know, a lot of, um, he's just said it's been a lot of, he used the exact phrase. He said there's been a lot of twists and turns in this case that have made it difficult. He said what he needs now is something from the crime scene. Um, One of them is the murder weapon. He confirmed that, but he said that's already been out in the media. He said he does not want to say what the other items are because he's like, I'll get fired. Did he say anything about Casey? I asked him about that and he said he's absolutely certain that Casey was at work at the time. Oh, he also said that there have been a lot of people who have come in and given statements, but he said they're all like meth heads, druggies, unreliable witnesses. Um, You know, he said it's going to be a very hard case to prosecute based on what those people said. But I don't, look, is he right? I don't know. But is that, is that, it's very helpful to know that that is what the cops think. from multiple sources throughout the years that one police theory is that drugs may have been involved in Rebecca's murder. And two names keep getting mentioned as persons of interest with those theories. There's Chris, who has a criminal record and has been in and out of prison on drug charges, and his friend JB. 
Taylor, James, and I go back to the murder board, looking at the web of facts we need to untangle to get to the truth. And so what is like, because it sounds like you have like a, like a process that you go through or like a method. Like, so what is going to be like your approach? to? Like, we look at the pictures of Chris kind of and JB. To the truth I know the these matter. guys have been arrested a lot for drugs, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they'd commit murder. You have to tell everyone what they, like, in a sense, what they want to hear. Um, for example, since you know, the police won't share their evidence with us, we've got a long road ahead as we try to solve this case. But I also know that because we're not the police, we have a shot at having someone talk to us that hasn't before or finding something new that will break the case wide open. Someone in this town knows something. And I'm not leaving until we find out who killed Rebecca Gold. I think to be really good at this job, you have to be able to stand back and look at it like a chess game. Otherwise, you're not going to be any good at this job. So you have to kind of go, okay, like, Rebecca's family, they love her. And obviously, that's your priority and you want to help them. But if you get too emotionally involved, then you're not doing your job properly, right? Think about the torture that Rebecca's family has gone through all these years. The torture of, like, knowing they live in the same town. Knowing what, kind of knowing what happened, not really. The weird thing to me is that life went on for all these people. So, you know, but they're still living with it. And you can, like, feel it. Because people still talk about it in the town all the time. It's a tough case. Um, I don't know why I think we can do it, but I kind of think we can. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. is a joint production between How Stuff Works and School of Humans. It is written and recorded by me, Katherine Townsend. Taylor Church is our producer and story editor. Audio editing and design by Jonathan Sleep. Mix engineer, Glenn Matulo. Audio mixing and love by Tune Welders. Executive producers, Brandon Barr and L.C. Crowley for School of Humans, and Connell Byrne and Chuck Bryant for How Stuff Works. Our field producer is James Morrison. Our researcher is Sandy Klosterman. Theme and original score by Ben Soli. Available wherever you get your music. To dig into the investigation, please visit HelenGonePodcast.com or follow us on social media. Support for this podcast is from Williams. We make clean energy happen. Williams is the first North American midstream company to establish a climate commitment and an immediate approach to a sustainable future. We've released our 2020 sustainability report to track progress on our ESG goals, which includes a near-term emissions reduction target of 56% by 2030. We're leveraging our natural gas-focused strategy to fight climate change today and build a clean energy economy tomorrow. Our infrastructure and commitment are transforming the future of energy. Learn more at williams.com. Courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. (laughs) Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. How do airplanes fly? What's in this box? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Learn how to store your gun securely and make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council.